We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. A tanned Will Weber is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests in the newsroom. Lisa Pileski. The third Monday of January is officially Blue Monday. Says who? Run naked through an imaginary field of daisies and... Wait a sec. Do I have to read this? No. Aren't there child labor laws? No. I'm done. Sorry. Here's Scott Thompson. Come on. Where are you going? Come on. It's only Blue Monday. And it's a, a great reason to play fats. Uh, you know what? I realize. I think I played Blue Monday every Blue Monday. Do we play the fats every? I think we have. There's judges. They're nodding their heads saying, yes, I think that. So, you know, any excuse to play fats domino is good enough for me. Blue Monday or not. And if that doesn't pick up your Blue Monday, maybe you're not an old guy. All right. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Uh, the gang's all here. Feel free to jump into the final up to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Will, uh, the Weber back from his, uh, vacation all tanned up and, and, uh, still a little wobbly, I guess, cause it's an all inclusive. And you know what that means around the swim up bar. But I stand, uh, anyway, uh, uh, good to have him back. Lots of news, uh, especially in regard to, uh, healthcare. Man, we want changes. We're getting changes. Um, it, it's so funny because I, I, you know, how many decades have we been going through this? Uh, whoever the government of the day is, and it just keeps getting shoved farther and farther down, and and nothing really gets done other than. Monday, uh, money to come in as a band-aid solution. Now, uh, the premier talking about adding more, uh, surgery clinics. We already have these, but they want to add more. Um, you know, whether you're getting a hernia or whether you're getting, uh, cataract surgery or what have you, these are not things that need to be done in a great big giant hospital and, and can be done in various clinics. Walk-in clinics where you get your blood tested, x-rays, those are all private owned. You don't pay a dime. You pay with your OHIP card. So uh, they're expanding that and hopefully uh, taking pressure off the hospital system. Uh, but, of course, every time there's change, it does uh, obviously bring up debate, as it should. Uh, but here's the premier today talking about uh, the simple goal that he's looking for here. Whether it's an emergency in the middle of the night or a problem that's been bothering you for years, no matter where you live, we want to connect you to more convenient care closer to home. But when it comes to your health, we must do more, and we're doing more. Today, we're taking action to reduce wait times for surgeries. We're expanding community surgical and diagnostic centers so you can get surgeries you need faster and closer to home. All right, and uh, obviously expanding a significant amount of these clinics uh, to take the pressure off the hospital system. This change, it represents tens of thousands of people, all with a chronic illness, who will now get the surgery they need sooner every year. A lot of people out there, they want to have the endless debates about who should provide care. All I care about, all Minister Jones cares about, all our government cares about, is that you get the care you need quickly and safely. More surgeries, shorter wait times, all paid, for by OHIP.
And, you know, many certainly understand the concerns. And again, there should be opposition. There should be checks and balances here. But, you know, um, I, 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 the status quo just simply is not working here. When it comes to your health, the health of all Ontarians, the status quo is no longer acceptable. We need to be bold. We need to be innovative. We need to be creative. We need to look to other provinces and countries to see what they do differently and borrow the best ideas. We also need to be clear. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card, never their credit card. And whether it's joint surgeries or uh, cataract surgeries or such, these are the sort of things that will be done. Where we have some of the longest waits. With new partnerships with community, surgical and diagnostic centers in Windsor, Kitchener, Waterloo and Ottawa, we're adding 14,000 more OHIP insured cataract surgeries every single year eliminating approximately 25% of the cataract wait list. And we're investing more than $18 million in other centers, adding even more surgeries in existing centers and doing 49,000 more hours of MRI and CT scans. All right, there you have it. The uh, Premier, Doug Ford, earlier today, uh, along with the health health minister, talking about uh, changes. Uh, it's really not changes. It's just expanding what is already there uh, in terms of uh, private facilities doing uh, certain surgeries for certain uh, types of uh, surgeries that need to be done that are just backing up the system. And and there's a massive wait list for So uh, good news there. Uh, we'll follow the story and uh, update you on it. All right. Uh, sad news over the weekend as uh, David Onley, uh, former lieutenant governor of Ontario, passed away. Elizabeth Dowdswell, the current holder of the uh, vice regal office, announcing on Saturday that uh, he had passed away. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts. Uh, you have met uh, or you had met uh, David Onley on occasion. I did, and I worked with him. I ran the internship program at Queen's Park in our terms of uh, the time that we were there, our two terms overlapped. So I I got to know him very well, and he was a a dedicated uh, advocate for people who are disabled, and he did it in a way that uh, left a a lasting, I think, impression on many people. He seemed to make a lasting impression on many. Lots of tributes coming in today. That's for sure. And let me give you a, an example of how he did it, uh, how he w- was able to really be very creative in, in getting his points across. Uh, when he first uh, came and, and was the governor general, he uh, one day he uh, had the reporters uh, that are Queen's Park. He said, come with me. And they went outside to the uh, northwest corner of the main legislative building. Uh, and which most people probably don't go there, but he took them there. And uh, the interesting thing is there was an entrance uh, to the second-story suite of that belonged to the uh, um, uh, lieutenant governor w- where he was going to work, and there was also a big reception room. But the back entrance uh, was a very steep uh, stairway going up. So he had uh, – he so he – wheeled over his scooter, which he, electric scooter that he had all mm-hmm. the time, at the base of the, of the uh, stairway, and he asked the reporters, take a photo of me looking up at these stairs, and the caption would be, I don't think I can use these stairs to get the, up to my office. Hmm. 
And so that was the type of way he he sort of made something very visible that uh, the reporters could take away with. And it wasn't just his words, but he was showing, giving examples of, you know, where there are, you know, uh, barriers to people with disabilities. And did he actually make change with that over his term? Did we see pro- uh, progress there? Well, he, uh, I think, I think a little much, uh, certainly awareness among people for sure. He did that. He always was frustrated because he says the governments would, you know, recognize people wanted more things to be done for the disabled and he would, um, they would announce programs. They'd, uh, you know, hire some people and do, do some studies. But he said they weren't really solutions. I mean, essentially they showed concern for the issue, but they didn't really solve things. And so he was constantly chastising government and saying, if you want to do something about this, you've got to actually do something that'll, you know, make life easier for the for the disabled. And so he he was frustrated. And many, many of the uh, advocates for disabled people said, we've been at this a long time and, you know, we have relatively little to show for it. Although I would say way before his term, there there, there was some, you know, activity in the latter part of uh, uh, the uh, last century when, in fact, uh, at the end of it, uh, the, the government did spend money on essentially putting in elevators in places in uh, public buildings that where they should have been, uh, for, you know, to, to help the people get up to various floors. But there were still a lot of other things that could be done. Talk about this position. Talk about the role. What's the job? Well, the job of, I mean, the job of the uh, auditor, sorry, of the lieutenant governor is essentially to essentially uh, to be the head of, essentially the head of state uh, for in Ontario. So, when dignitaries come, or uh, there's various times awarding of mail of medals or awards to people, he would he these are the things he would do. He actually had to not have the you know say a budget to actually do things. Um, so he could only he could only basically uh, you know advise uh, the government of the day that they should do something, and but it was always in you know up to the government they decide whether they're actually going to you know spend money on trying to improve the uh, the problem you know the access for uh, for uh, disabled people in various ways. So um, you know there were all sorts of ways of showing it. You know he he you know. For example, he would sometimes go on with celebrities and show how they uh, and the celebrity might uh, get on an electric scooter with them, and he'd show how difficult it was to sometimes mm. cross streets if you have if you didn't have uh, if you had a high uh, curb, uh, you know that we normally have. It, it's not very conducive for for an electric scooter to go over. So he would do it with a celebrity, someone like that. So he would do these sort of things that would be very visual to sort of you know, grab people and they would say, oh, now I see that. I mean, most of us, you know, would have, you know, not even think twice about, you know, oh, I've got to, when I cross yeah. the street, I may have have to jump over, or not jump over, but step over a curve. But for a disabled person, it may be, you know, impossible to do. How important is the role of Lieutenant Governor? Well, I think the, the the most important thing that happens is, and it's one thing the lieutenant governors generally never wanted to do, is if if there was some if there was a vote of no confidence in the in the yeah. legislature, then he would have to call on the you know he would have to tell the you know uh, you know 
have a have an election called. And he he preferred not to have. I mean, that was a you know something that the lieutenant governors generally and the governor general generally doesn't like to be involved with because as often as a decision of do you call on the opposition to be the government or do you call an election. And uh, that that's that's a very big decision, and most of them were quite happy to be, you know, to be the head of state and basically to nudge people, to you know, give them advice, but uh, not really to be the the actual political actor who's going to be changing things. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science at McMaster University, speaking on the passing of David Onley, former lieutenant governor of Ontario. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Gas prices expected to jump this week. And, oh, have you seen your natural gas bill lately? Uh, Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. He is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and good to be here. Thanks, Doug. Got a couple a couple of energy stories I want to touch on you uh, touch on with you. Uh, first, gas going up in natural gas uh, already. What are your thoughts there? Reasoning? Well, no, no surprise. We just forgot about it because under regulated natural gas prices uh, only go up, uh, you know, starting uh, on a particular date. So uh, we saw some pretty substantial increases throughout the summer, all of last year, right into the fall. Of course, it's come down a little bit these past few weeks because. Uh, of warmer weather, and uh, I suspect uh, markets have uh, perhaps fallen for the head fake that, oh, Chinese uh, uh, lockdowns for COVID, uh, you know, um, inflation, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Fed moves to increase interest rates, all of these things uh, are going to damage demand, but nothing could be further from the truth. And, of course, what we're seeing here is a 50% increase in the actual cost of natural gas, uh, mostly due to the fact that there just wasn't enough. And, you know, countries like Canada, and I, I, we've said it before, I sound like a broken record, refuse to provide natural gas to the rest of the world. We, we have this cultist climate mentality that says you can't produce oil and gas when, in fact, the world needs more of it. Uh, and, of course, uh, Japan, the latest to get turned away. Uh, Germany, weeks before that, come uh, to Canada looking for natural gas. That being said, um, uh, the Prime Minister doesn't see the business case for, last, for natural gas, but he sees it for lithium mining uh, in Saskatchewan today, announcing that, uh, you know, the opening of a future mine. I guess there's one lithium mine in Canada, but it's owned by China, and everything that comes out of the ground goes directly to China, which, how does that happen, is, is one question but anyway uh talk about our business uh, as getting back into heavy mining again because we sort of strayed away from this well china's already cornered the market on battery making a long time ago rare earth minerals lithium cobalt etc uh so it's gonna be hard for you to get back in uh but more importantly i think we uh you know apart from what this lithium does promise and by the way it's an invention that came from a little company called exxon so maybe Mm. there's a bit of irony there for folks who don't like to be reminded but at the end of the day, I, I think we have to be mindful of what's involved with mining. It's an extraordinarily intensive amount of energy to provide a very small amount of, uh, of, of minerals and, and metals, uh, many of those which we need. And so for that reason, uh, you know, I think we have to look, be very, very careful that you know, for every uh, pound of cobalt, of various uh, metals required for a battery, requires tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of tons of ore and rock to be displaced, to be processed, to be uh, you, to, 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 to use acids of all sorts. 
you know, go look at some of the lakes in China, in which about a fifth of the land mass is already polluted, having created some of this stuff. And here I'm not talking about coal, although to process these things requires an extraordinary amount of hydrocarbons. So I think it's a bit of a false, uh, not just, I don't just think, I know it's a false uh, a pursuit that we tend to think of electric vehicles and solar panels and windmills all being clean. But to get this to that point not only requires you know, perhaps as much as a 10 to 15 fold increase over the next 15 years uh, of our mineral extraction. Good luck doing it in Canada, uh, because, of course, the environmental requirements are substantial. The amount of money required is substantial. Governments can't subsidize everything. And at the end of the day, the cost of doing any kind of business in Canada is extraordinarily prohibitive, owing to the fact that uh, we, uh, we have a lot of regulations on just about everything. Now, that's not a bad thing, but if you're going to pursue this, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to let up somewhere unless China, India, uh, you know, South Korea, uh, Indonesia, those kind of countries can do these things uh, uh, with with relative impunity. They don't worry about labor laws. They don't worry about environmental standards. And at the end of the day, they really don't give a darn about our you know our woke climate objectives. So, I think it's uh, again window dressing by prime minister doesn't get it. The world gets it. Consumers today opening up their natural gas bills really get it because they ha- they can't blame this on big corporations. It's regulated prices. What they have to recognize is that when you vote Liberal, NDP, Green, or any these other parties that are really big on shutting down hydrocarbons and pursuing you know energies that are not very effective on a cold day like today or like we've had in the past couple of weeks, then you're going to wind up paying through the nose. And I unfortunately, it's a very hard lesson for many people to learn. Unfortunately, and I say that unfortunately because I I take no pleasure in these prices going up. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, for a country that's blessed with an abundance of resources, natural gas and oil. It's a crying shame, and it's because of a political agenda and a narrative in this country that says, oh, the world is coming to an end, and that we have to do these things and basically uh, punish ourselves as a result of our pursuit of, uh, uh, you know, the improbable renewal, renewables that don't fit our, uh, our needs in a modern day. Uh, I'm all for using our, our natural resources, whether it's, it's, it's liquid natural gas or minerals or what have you. But again, as you just alluded to, uh, we're shutting pipelines or closing projects left, right, and center, or not approving them, rather, better choice of words. Uh, and here we're talking about a, a lithium mine. Uh, the climate change minister said there's like over 270 uh, restrictions or guidelines or things that they have to conform to to get this done. Can, can they do that, or is this will this ever even get built? Because the same reason there's no business case for liquid natural gas to mine this stuff, as you've said, the environmentalists aren't, aren't going to want that either. Oh, <laughs> we just turned away fifty billion dollars worth of, ac- uh, of, of uh, economic activity that Qatar, Australia, uh, many other nations around the world uh, are quite willing. Oman even are quite willing to step up to the plate and do. I'm not sure if listeners here can make the connection, but they better do it soon between throwing away and becoming a place where no one wants to invest, that is Canada, because of these woke ideas, and, uh, you know, the kind of hospital, uh, you know, the kind of uh, problems we're having with our infrastructure. We're complaining about our hospitals. We're complaining about the inability for us to fund some of the great projects that they're going to massive debt. You can't do those things if you don't have anyone attractive to your country. And Canada is attractive. Not only does it have a lot of hydrocarbons, it happens to produce oil and gas to the highest international standards. Now, I know this may be bad news to the wokesters out there that might be listening, but folks, 
we win on all the ESG scores. There are no other countries that do as well as we do. Not that we give ourselves credit for it. Canadians are really big on dumping on themselves and, oh, shucks, we don't want to, you know, we, we don't want to tap ourselves on the, on the shoulder. But that's one thing to ignore that. It's another thing to be able to turn around and say, oh, we'll let other countries do our, you know, do, do the bidding. We'll just sit back and have the government spend billions of dollars of money we don't have, incur massive amounts of debts in order to incentivize the building of renewables that nobody wants, no one can afford, and at the end of the day, doesn't provide people adequate, reliable levels of energy that we need as a modern, progressive, affordable, and clean society. Have we heard the fallout from those uh, from that same group of environmentalists on the mining industry? Because so some uh, right now everybody's mum on this. Nobody's talking about it. Is it going to get to the point where stuff starts spewing out of the ground? The people going, hey, you know, this is just as polluting as as the other forms of energy. Oh, I think they will. It's just a matter of you know convenience. These are the same group of people, uh, McKibben and others, who walk around saying, oh, it's okay to rip down trees, throw them into a. Uh, you know, turn them into pellets and then burn them off and then call that uh, bio bioenergy, biofuels, which, of course, it isn't. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a crying shame. Um, I don't think they have really organized themselves in such a way. And we've all contented ourselves with at least one part of the world that we don't want to talk about, that being China. And I'm not pointing a finger at them, by, but saying, hey, they can get away with it. Good luck trying to protest that country. They'll show you the door very quickly and then some. Uh, until we have that kind of cooperation from other parts of the world, there's no point in Canadians punishing themselves because we're trying to achieve a goal. Where we have and what we are doing is extraordinarily good. And I mentioned earlier our rankings on those so-called environmental, social, and governance rankings. But, you know, rather than beat ourselves up, maybe it's time that we look at the politicians and ask, you know, are they really proposing something that in one of the coldest countries on the face of this planet uh, you know, are, are willing to say to everybody, do with less, not just with less, do with less energy. And if you don't like it, we're going to make damn sure and we're going to tax the daylight side of it. And then we'll pretend that you're going to get a bit of a rebate back. By the way, as these prices make their way through the economy and that we see a devaluation in the Canadian dollar because we mm. purchased everything in U.S. dollars, people have to begin to ask themselves and make the, 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 make the connection between the high cost of energy, the high cost of food, the high cost of heating their homes, and making ends meet because at the end of the day if uh, we're not looking at that i think we're we're missing uh we're missing the forest for the trees uh, it's time Damn. for canadians to throw out these woke politicians Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, gas prices going up and natural gas already there. As uh, Dan as always thanks for the time be well. You too. Thanks Scott. Bye now. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we heard uh, Premier Doug Ford speaking earlier today, along with the Health Minister Sylvia Jones, Ontario expanding the private delivery of public health care funding by clinics, uh, by funding clinics to perform more cataract surgeries, MRI, CT scans, colonoscopies, hip and knee replacements, that sort of stuff, in order to ease the pressure on on a obviously very taxed hospital system. Uh, the Premier uh, lamented endless debates about who should deliver health care uh, or um, uh, on that in, in debating on who should pay for what. All he cares about is getting people the care that they need quickly and safely. Let's bring in Robin Martin, uh, Parliamentary Secretary Assistant to the Minister of Health and MPP for Eglinton Lawrence. Uh, Robin Martin is with us now. Robin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I'm very good. Thank you. So uh, obviously, as soon as everybody wants change, but as soon as you announce it, everybody goes, oh, my goodness, what's happening here? So what's the message you want to get out? What is it that you are doing and you've announced today? Because this is expanding what you've already or are already doing. Is that accurate? That is accurate. In fact, there are about 900 clinics around the province uh, that provide uh, MRIs, CT scans, cataract surgeries, and some other procedures. Uh, And they've been operating in Ontario for decades. Um, They provide about 26,000 procedures annually right now. And what we're doing is exactly what you said, expanding the amount of services that they can provide uh, so that we have more services available and we can get care for people quicker. Some people are waiting, you know, for diagnostic services, MRIs and CT scans, for example. Um, and uh, they they can't get on with their treatment until they get their diagnostic procedures. And we want to make sure that they get those procedures done as quickly as possible. We want to make sure they get their cataract surgeries done as quickly as possible. So that's what this is all about, expanding access to care for people, making sure they don't have to travel as far and they can get care closer to home uh, and getting the services delivered so people can get the health care that they deserve uh the ndp have said this is a slippery slope what are your thoughts um <laughs> well um i i don't know i mean i know for example that these 900 uh, clinics operating currently in the province of ontario have been licensed and have had their licenses renewed under governments of every political stripe uh, in this province of ontario Um, So that includes the NDP, but also the Liberals, and that they have had those licenses issued and renewed for decades under those other governments when they existed. Uh, So they were okay with them to do what they were doing. All we're doing, as I've indicated, is giving more money to them so that they can provide more services uh, for people. And, you know, we have a lot of demand for services and we have backlog demand, a lot of that, you know, in relation to COVID, but we had existing backlogs in demand. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure people get services quickly so they can get on with their lives and have more productive and fulfilling lives. Uh, another uh, uh, comment they levied was or uh, they laid down was that uh, the health care, this will increase health care uh, shortages, uh, that people will go from that one system to the other. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think honestly, we need to look at our healthcare system as a system, um, and we need to leverage capacity across the board. Uh, I've read uh, that doctors, and I heard the premier say this morning that a lot of doctors are only able to provide surgical care uh, for uh, one day or one and a half days in the hospitals at which they have privileges. So, isn't it a good thing to allow those doctors to provide more surgical care? on the other days in another venue if the hospital doesn't have the ability to give them access to operating rooms uh, to do so. That's just leveraging the existing capacity in the system and making sure more people get care quicker. And I think that's a win-win for everybody. Um, the other thing is the MRI and CT uh, scans are done by technicians. Uh, so uh, I understand from the Ontario Association of Radiologists that was speaking today in the, in the news that they have capacity to provide those scans. Eventually, obviously, they'll need more uh, more uh, um, healthcare providers, radiologists, and technicians to do more. Um, but for now, they have the capacity. We need to use all the capacity in our system as soon as possible, and we need to keep uh, recruiting, retaining, uh, and training more healthcare providers. And our government has the largest health human rec- uh, resource recruitment, retention, and training initiative in Ontario's history that we embarked on prior to COVID. 
Why are we so sensitive about this? Is it just lack of communication? Not everybody understands what's going on. Uh, you know, you hear private, you see credit card, which the premier made very clear today. You're paying with your OHIP, not your credit card. Why is this such a sensitive issue for us? Um, I don't, I think it's, it's an issue which is polarized. I think we use words, uh, like public and private without really understanding what we're talking about and what they mean. Yeah. For example, a lot of these clinics, uh, there's 900 of them operating around the province. Some of them, including the one that the, uh, the prime, uh, premier and, uh, minister of health were at this morning are not for profit. So, you know, they're not the big, bad, evil corporation that some people would like to make them out to be. Uh, some of them are uh, for profit. Uh, at the end of the day, I think what most people care about is getting access to healthcare quicker. And as the premier said, there are a lot of people who want to debate about how it's provided, who's providing it, et cetera. The most important thing to patients is access to quality care as soon as, as, as it can be delivered. And we have resources. So let's give people more access quicker to quality care. Robin Martin with us, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Health, MPP for Eglinton Lawrence. Robin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. All right. Justice Minister David Lametti says Ottawa is building a foundation to allow Indigenous legal systems to flourish alongside the Canadian justice system. What does that mean? Let's bring in Leah Midzane Gobin, settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, and with us now. Liam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. No problem at all. And I hope you're doing well, too, Scott. Thanks. So far, so good. Uh, so, Liam, what is exactly does this mean? How does this work? Because many people will look at this and say it's a two-tier system. It's one for this, one for that. What is the objective here? What are we trying to do? So the objective isn't totally clear, uh, which may be part of the problem. But I guess a little bit of context is necessary. Um, indigenous peoples are vastly overrated or overrepresented over were represented in our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most uh, recent federal numbers are that there are about 30% of inmates are Indigenous peoples, despite um, Indigenous peoples making up just under 5% of the Canadian population. So there's a pretty clear problem here. One of the things that the um, new proposal aims to do is reduce that overrepresentation, um, And so kind of moving away from some of the current approaches towards uh, either def- a whole different system or a much better job of incorporating principles of Indigenous restorative justice in the current system. Um, but what's a bit unclear is how far that's to go and whether or not there's actually going to be the construction of parallel systems of justice. Um, that, I guess, is TBD because they've just finished the pre-engagement engagement stage um, and they're kind of in the process of building that that current proposal right now. Uh, we hear terms like building the foundation. Some wonder whether this is just lip service. Do you think this will move forward to any sort of meaningful uh, progress or or way of dealing with this? I really hope it will. Um, I think it's a good sign that each of the major national indigenous organizations have signed on and that especially so the announcement we saw, I believe, on Friday was that the Métis Nation and um, some various uh, different portions and groups within the Métis Nation are going to be um, signing on and doing a lot of work to develop a Métis-specific vision of this justice strategy. So um, I think that's a good sign. I think it's a good sign that they're moving ahead. My concern would also be that it might just take too long. Currently, um, funding is supposed to run from 
the budget 2021 for three years. And we're almost, we're a full year through that, uh, almost two at this point. So uh, it's, it's taking a little bit and there's not too, too much more time for the funding to, to keep being dispersed. Uh, are we to assume this just happens for those who live on a reserve or, or do we know that? I definitely don't think it's just on reserve. Um, actually, more than half of Indigenous peoples across the country live in what are uh, known or what are seen as urban areas. Um, so what we're really seeing is uh, a justice system that is totally mismatched with kind of where people actually are. Um, and so it'll it'll be you know, like people on reserve will obviously um, be covered to some extent. But there are indigenous systems already in place in, in some places, um, especially policing forces. Um, mm-hmm. But more so, it'll likely be once indigenous peoples are kind of um, interacting with the system, then that's when uh, at some point this new system or set of policies will really um, kick into gear and become a part of the process. How or who would decide which system applies? That isn't totally clear. Um, yeah. And that, I guess, is, is one of the things that will be worked out um, during the current engagement process. Um, one of the things that is really important is that those kinds of decisions be made by Indigenous peoples themselves. And what it seems like is that in the case of the Métis, that's a decision that will ultimately uh, be be made by Métis themselves, or at least in accordance with a framework or a set of decision-making um, suggestions that are written by the Métis. So that's kind of the best possible outcome, um, but we have to we have to wait and see. Some may say, I'm playing, I'm playing devil's advocate here, um, what about other racialized communities? If one community has this, shouldn't we apply this to others? So I think the difference here is the fact of colonization on this territory. Yeah. Um, part of the reason that this is so important is because indigenous legal orders, legal systems, and like laws have been displaced by settler laws and by, by Canadian mm-hmm. law, the Crown, and the Constitution. If the Canadian government is going to be putting money into rebuilding those Indigenous legal systems, I think that's a huge win. And I think that's a, that's a different kind of relationship that Indigenous peoples have on this territory than uh, other marginalized groups. And so um, I think that kind of constitutes the kind of major focal point of difference. So what happens next, Liam? Uh, well, if you look on the uh, Justice Canada website, they have finished the pre-engagement. They are in the Indigenous and Justice-led uh, engagement process. Uh, and so what it seems like we're going to get is a series of reports that come out of that process. And so we're going to get a series of reports and recommendations on how to set up this kind of a system. And then it'll be on the government to actually go ahead and design or co-design legislation with each of the nations uh, and each of the peoples. And then it'll kind of go through the House of Commons. Uh, and so the next report, next next date, just getting a lot of reports, but it really will be a kind of setting out of an understanding of what this will actually look like is, is what we should look for next. Liam Midzangobin with a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University Justice Minister David Lamenti says Ottawa is working on a foundation to allow indigenous legal systems to flourish alongside the Canadian justice system. Liam, as always, thank you for the uh, for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech expert and journalist, and talk about a couple of stories, including the rebirth of the flip phone. Man, is this like the resurgence <laughs> of vinyl? <laughs> Carmi Levy is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I can hear you Lord. laughing. Al- <laughs> I can hear you laughing already. So, is this nostalgia or is this practicality here? It's kind of a bit of both. And and it is like I do sort of throw it into the same bucket as the resurgence of vinyl. People are pulling out their old CDs, even cassettes. Sales are up and interest is great. You see it all over Instagram every day. People taking pictures uh, and sharing them of their old retro tech. And I think it's it's a, it's a response. And we've seen a lot of coverage. So CNN has been covering it. Uh, New York Times series of articles on uh, mostly teenagers, uh, early 20s, Gen Z. Uh, uh, individuals who really are taking to this tech ironic since they never even used it at all when they were kids they're kind of digging through mom and dad's junk drawer and pulling these phones out um, but I think it's a response to the smartphone I think people are getting tired of social media they're being tired of being always on uh, of, of having a million different apps competing for their their attention I think they like the vibe of a device that only makes calls, only sends and receives texts uh, on a T9 keypad and takes some really lousy pictures. And the lousiness, the low resolution, the blown highlights, that's part of the appeal. They'll run share those online and those get lots of attention, not the super high res, high quality pics that their smartphones will take. I think there's there's something to this retro vintage technology. And for whatever reason, younger kids seem to be really dialing into it. I think it's cool to watch. I remember my kids uh, getting into the vinyl thing, my daughter specifically, and then asking me, hey, do you have a video camera, Dad? <laughs> and then off they went. It was great, though, because we got to watch uh, you know, some stuff from 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, nostalgia obviously plays a big part in all of this. But again, you are giving up quite a bit of technology when you're going back to the flip phone. Um, what does it say that maybe we don't want to be as connected? Is, is that a message that's coming through here? Is that something that might even change the way technology moves forward? I just want this. Because normally it's not about I just want or need this. It's what can I get? I want, the, I mean, we all seem to have, you know, line up for the latest Apple thing. What, what's next? What's next? Is this, do you, do you think there's uh, much legs in this that people just want to you know, keep it simple, stupid? I think there is. And although I don't, I don't think flip phones are going to take over the market anytime soon. In other no. words, I don't think we're all getting rid of our smartphones in favor of an old Nokia. Um, but at the same time, I think at the fringe of the market, at the edge of the market, I think there's there's a movement. And these are exactly the same people who would listen to vinyl uh, albums, who would you know do things that are harder, may, maybe not necessarily as high tech or as super refined, but I think they appreciate that they have to work a little bit uh, in order to take a picture, to share it. I think it turns things into more of an experience. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that they're posting it on Instagram and on TikTok afterwards shows that they're still not getting rid of their smartphones. But what they are doing is hmm. putting them away maybe for an afternoon, a Sunday afternoon or a, an evening or two a week. And just saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get off. I'm going to take a bit of a sabbatical. I'm going to get off 
the high tech treadmill for a bit. I am going to be a little bit harder to reach because I think it's overwhelming. I think all of this super high tech stuff and high tech connectedness and social media, all, you know, all, all on all the time. I think there's a limit to that. And I think there's, it is a growing movement. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to be dominant, but I think it's, it's heartening that we're finally starting to recognize after 15 years of social media that just because you can be connected doesn't mean that you always should be. Sometimes it's okay to hit the off switch. Sometimes it's okay to reach into the drunk drawer and use an old piece of technology just for fun. And I think that movement in, in a, you know, kind of on the edge of the tech space has legs. Especially within Generation Z. That's, that's the neat, the weird thing about all of this. What about value price? Is it cheaper? It really is. I mean, you can buy a new phone uh, either on Amazon or you can walk into a Walmart, uh, 50 bucks, uh, if not less. Or you could just go to mm-hmm. eBay. People are selling these things. And in some cases, they will charge more because they, there's almost like a retro or a vintage tax on it. Uh, but if you're if you're a careful shopper, you can find an old phone for cheap. And then the plan that you get for it, because it doesn't have huge amounts of data, will also be cheaper per month. So there are a lot of people who, as a second phone, they kind of keep it because it's pretty, it's cheap to buy, cheap to keep, um, in addition to their regular smartphone. So, but it will not break the bank. Uh, and for a lot of parents who may want to give their kids their first phone, this may be the way to go because as we all know, those flip phones, really, really tough, take a lot more abuse than uh, that slab of glass that's in your pocket. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Um, so obviously, <laughs> you said this isn't going to, you know, novelty. You're certainly not going to give up your your smartphone for it. That being said, uh, is big biz tech looking at this? Do they realize there might be another segment of the market here? Well, I think so. And I think we will probably see more uh, uh, smartphone manufacturers, more technology companies recognizing that there is opportunity at the edge of the market. And we'll start seeing more flip phones, more, you know, candy bar phones, kind of old T9 kind of phones um, introduced into the market. In fact, if you look, the, the irony here is that Flip phones and, and candy bar phones and the old style non-smartphone phones never really fully went away, but they were always targeted at a more senior audience. So, you know, individuals mm. in their 60s, 70s, 80s or beyond who just couldn't sort of get used to the whole idea of apps and touch screens and all that. And they just wanted a phone that worked and didn't want to have to pay the premium for all these services and features and confusion that they would never even use anyway. So uh, the irony that it's starting to, to take root, it's starting to grow in demand at the younger end of the market. I think that's kind of neat, kind of nice. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that grandkids and grandparents now have something in common. And I would expect the tech industry to start marketing to that. We're already seeing, you know, in the vinyl space, huge demand. We're seeing old cameras uh, also mm. picking up steam, seeing a lot of that on uh, Instagram as well. Um, so I would expect exactly the same thing to happen with phones as well. Already my Facebook marketplace listings show lots of uh, cheap phones out there and uh, there's money to be made here. All right, got about a minute left, just under a minute here. I uh, want to get your thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister announcing new a new lithium mine out in Saskatchewan. I guess there's one already in Mant- Manitoba, but it's owned by China, and all of the raw product goes right there. Uh, talk about this new phase of technology that we're getting into. 
You cannot have electric vehicles and green technology, the batteries to power them without lithium, cobalt, copper, graphite, the, the rare earth metals that, that make them up. And as it turns out, Canada has massive reserves, world leading reserves. We could be a huge power. We're talking about like the Middle East with oil. Canada could be the equivalent for the materials that make electric vehicle batteries. And so to see the federal government starting to really push this, and there's a new mine that was just greenlit, uh, in near James Bay as well. Um, and that Canada can be the country that that produces all of this stuff for the rest of the world instead of leaning on China uh, and Russia and other you know not so uh, savory players. I think is huge, uh, and I would expect more of this in the years to come. We've really got to jump on this. We've got to be leaders, not followers. Carmen Levy with us, technology analyst and journal, uh, journalist talking everything from flip phones to lithium batteries. Uh, Carmen, as always, thanks for the time. Always enjoyable, and uh, be well. Really appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, it ain't a coal mine. It's a lithium mine. And these, of course, the valuable uh, minerals that are needed in order to uh, create uh, lithium batteries and, and what we need with uh, electric vehicles and uh, obviously a transition away from fossil Fossil fuels. A couple of big stories here. Uh, the Prime Minister in Saskatoon at a plant that uh, uh, processes rare uh, minerals and also uh, a, James Bay lithi- uh, a James Bay lithium mine has been approved in Quebec. To talk more about all of this, what it all means, Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Doing very well. So obviously, uh, this is, uh, many people excited about this. Um, you know, anytime we can get to our natural resources and, and get them, uh, to market, it is, uh, a good thing. I understand China owns now the only lithium mine in Canada and all of the material, uh, goes to there. Uh, is there a better business case for this than there is liquid natural gas? Uh, I frankly don't think so. And don't let me. I don't want to give you the idea I'm against this mining project. I think that we have to develop our resources. Agreed. Uh, sure, we have to develop them in a in a clean manner, in a sustainable manner, with high environmental standards. Absolutely certain. Uh, but uh, and so I and I support uh, the the development of our mining sector. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I I actually when you actually look at the data, and I mean the hard data, um, lithium, lithium, lithium mining it, it generates quite a bit of GHG. And that's just inevitable when you when you start pulling rock out of the ground. Uh, by contrast, just to, because you brought up the LNG, the liquefied natural gas, why I'm so big on this and why I'm so critical of Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Gibo for shooting it down is that natural gas is used by countries that are high users of coal and they're high emitters of ghg china is the worst in the world highest absolute amount of emissions in the world uh, and they're the highest user of coal us is second and then japan south korea india we should be and germany just in behind they're switching increasingly to coal because they're short we should be instead of saying LNG, which is what the Mr. Trudeau is saying, and Mr. Gibo is saying, look, it's fossil fuel. Fossil fuels are bad. Therefore, we're not going to uh, allow it to be exported. If they were more um, 
strategic, if they were uh, looking at the the big picture, the entire picture, they'd be saying, look, we are going to, by shipping LNG, we're going to get them reduce their usage of coal, which is twice as dirty, twice as high the amount of emissions for a given uh, volume or en- amount of energy. And so natural gas is the cleanest of all the fossil fuels. Coal is the dirtiest. Therefore, anything that switches users from coal to natural gas is a net plus for the environment. The irony right now is that this is actually going to be a net producer. Uh, and I'm talking now the mine in, in uh, James Bay is going to be a net um, producer of of GHG, even though it's for a good reason. We agree with that. Nonetheless, it's going to be a net contributor to GHG emissions. Um, so how does the climate change minister justify this? They say there's like 271 conditions put on all of this. Will they soon start throttling the mining industry the way they are the liquid natural gas industry? Remains to be seen. Uh, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to take a, a stab at answering your question. Um, uh, yeah, I, as you know, I'm a huge believer in being evidence based. Evidence based to me means looking at statistics, hard data from reliable sources. You know, Stats Canada, Environment Canada, Natural Resources Canada, that sort of thing. That's certainly what I teach in my classes. Um, and and I think that this administration is is driven more by ideology than it is by evidence. Or if you want to put it slightly differently, they cherry pick their data. They're yeah. very selective about their data. So, I mean, I just gave you the example of the LNG. You know, they completely ignore the mitigating effects of LNG because it displaces coal. They conveniently ignore that completely. And and so, but when mitigation is important to their argument, as it is on the lithium mines, then they bring it out. And, and so my point being that uh, I think that they're motivated not because they've done hard, empirical, factual cost-benefit analysis, what's the net plus and minus of LNG exports versus uh, in terms of emissions, what's the net plus or minus for the lithium mine, um, and let's put the two side by side. You know, literally a cost-benefit analysis. I don't think that they do that. I think that it's driven by their ideological commitment. They think that critical minerals, they are necessary for, uh, for, for example, uh, electric cars. And so they've just decided that we need it. So therefore, then they come up with the justification ex post facto. It's interesting that there's a 20-year, they figure they'll get 20 years worth of service out of this mine, but don't see a 20-year business case for natural gas in a pipeline or terminal or anything. It, it's crazy because when you look at the hard data again, and this isn't secret data, I want everyone to understand, this is data produced by the International Energy Agency, which is a UN body showing every country how much they consume of coal versus natural gas versus oil, etc. And there is no question that the five worst emitters in the world, the highest, largest emitters of GHG, are the five largest emit users of coal. And there's no question that if you dramatically reduce your reduction, your usage of coal, you are going to reduce 
your emissions of GHG. And so, you know, and, and China is huge. 65% of its energy comes from coal. Japan, even though they're one of our allies, and South Korea is an ally of, of, of Western countries, they're very large users of, of coal, which is the dirtiest of the filthiest of the dirty. So you would think that if you really were committed to saying we really want to get the total amount of emissions going into the air reduced, then you would say, well, then let's use LNG and get as much as possible over to China, to South Korea, to India, to Japan, to these countries that are huge users of coal, which is the number one contributor to global warming. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about lithium mining and its place in Canadian inter- uh, energy. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Man, we certainly know over the last uh, little while how Hamilton has exploded. And even with a global pandemic uh, and, and what we're going through now with economy, it's still uh, Hamilton proving to uh, be pulling in still strong performances right through all of this. Uh, and it's a brand new year. So let's look ahead. Let's bring in Norm Schlehan, uh, Director of Economic Development with the city of Hamilton and is with us now. Norm, thank you for the time. I hope you're well doing well Scott good afternoon so first of all let's talk about last year Norm if you could sum up last year uh, what would you say what are your thoughts so last year was a a a very positive year from a development uh, perspective Uh, we're going to see probably just a very slight decline in our industrial numbers uh, over year the past year however it's very important to note that there's a lot that's in the pipe that's going to be basically coming online in the first uh, quarter of next year. So development doesn't usually happen on a calendar year to calendar year, but uh, it's a very positive year. And uh, there's going to be a lot of announcements uh, being made in 2023. So how did the pandemic affect what you guys are trying to do in economic development? Does it slow it down? Do you just refocus in other areas, plant seeds that now will, will, uh, will, will grow? How, how is it going through that two and a half, three years? It really depends on what sector of the economy that, that you're looking in. You know, um, if you focus on the industrial sector, uh, stuff in our, our business parks, that really has not slowed down. And actually, uh, we had our best year ever on record uh, in uh, in 2021 uh, from a building permit perspective in the industrial sector. So that still is strong and it continues to move forward. Uh, definitely some other sectors of the economy that are, uh, are you know, remain, remain uh Challenging, but but resilient. Uh, I mean, uh, the uh, the stats that we're seeing, even off of our on-street retail and our BIAs, uh, they're still you know doing fairly well in terms of you know occupancy rates of over ninety percent if you average them all over across the board. So so they've been doing quite well. I think the office market uh, we're going to have to be watching that very closely as we move forward into uh, into the new year because it's uh, a, a new uh, office norm out there with the whole hybrid working culture. Um, so um, that that's going to be a sector I think we're going to keep our, keep our eyes on as we move into 2023 very closely. What do we need more of? We remember, you know, at one time it was, uh, you know, residential development downtown, um, um, you know, things like grocery stores, hotels, what have you. Obviously, with business development, uh, it, it helps our tax base and such. As you said, business uh, and, and stuff that's going on in the industrial parks continues to uh, to grow. Where, where are we right now? What do we need moving forward? I guess it depends on who you're talking to, Scott, because, mm. you know, I, I think there's a, uh, you know, if you, if you take a look, um, you know, across the board, 
Uh, we'll, we'll start with industrial and we'll go across, across the board. Uh, I think from a, you know, uh, there's some great infill opportunities moving forward with the Stelco lens or the, that, that uh, are coming on stream now. And uh, that's because that's a huge opportunity for some great uh, reutilization of some lands that have been un- uh, far underutilized for so many years. So um, I, I think seeing some presence down there uh, in the north end of the city and some new employers and, uh, and some new vitality down there, that, that would be fantastic. Uh, I think in the downtown core, I'd like to see more people uh, more people definitely living in the downtown core supporting the businesses that, that are there, uh, especially in light of what I talked about in terms of the office market uh, being a little little different uh, different shape uh, than traditionally has been. So, you know, in, in those two areas, I guess, it, it, and definitely the, uh, from the small business and entrepreneurship, you know, even despite what's been going on in the, with the pandemic and whatnot, we continue to see so much resilience uh, from uh, – and, and, and interest in businesses wanting to set up in, in, in these main street areas. You know, uh, when when one one shop uh, closes, uh, another shop seems to be opening. So, hmm. so you know, I, I think it's uh, it, across the board. It, it, it still is fairly strong. What about LRT? How does that figure into downtown and development and moving forward? Uh, still a massive draw. Oh, that's absolutely, and we're still seeing interest from. Uh, the folks that want to, um, you know, develop and take advantage of that opportunity of that uh, the train coming through the through the downtown core and, and along along the lines, there's uh, opportunities for affordable housing along the route, uh, as well as you know commercial retail opportunities. Now there will be a transition period as uh, things do get uh, uh, as this does get built, obviously. Uh, but you know what? Uh, what the pandemic has done actually for a lot of the businesses, even along that route, is prepare how to basically work in an environment where there isn't a lot of foot traffic coming in. So mm. uh, we've had programs through our Small Business Enterprise Center or the Hamilton Business Center on the main floor of City Hall that have actually, you know, provided businesses with the opportunity of how to, can they digitize their business. And, you know, I think over since 2021, we provided over $1.3 million in DMS grants uh, to businesses that are looking to digitize and take their, take their products on and uh, businesses online. We're certainly seeing a lot more cranes in the sky in downtown Hamilton than we once did. Uh, no question. No question. Uh, you can see the, the scape, uh, streetscape uh, as you're coming in. and You see that uh, as close as uh, MIP, I think, as, as you're coming in. And then when you look down, you see that there are towers that uh, are on uh, either ends of the core and uh, right in the middle as well. So it, it is very encouraging um, that those residents will definitely help the businesses that are in the downtown core and uh, make sure that they, they can be sustained and it's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity. Great time to be in the hammer. Norm Schlehan with us, Director of Economic Development in the city of Hamilton, talking about uh, 2023 and what's in store for us. Norm, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Take care. When it comes to your health, the health of all Ontarians, the status quo is no longer acceptable. We need to be bold. We need to be innovative. We need to be creative. We need to look to other provinces and countries to see what they do differently and borrow the best ideas. We also need to be clear. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card, never their credit card. All right. Uh, 
announcement today by the health minister and the premier uh, expanding the uh, surgeries that are performed uh, in the number of, uh, of uh, private-run health uh, clinics, obviously funded through the government, taking things like cataract surgeries, MRI, CT scans, colonoscopies, hip and knee replacements out of the hospital system uh, to try to keep it for what it is, and that's caring for very, very sick people. Uh, is this a step in the right direction? Is this reform? How come now? Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and with us now. Sean, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, sir. So your thoughts on all of this? I mean, it seemed we were at a stalemate. The provinces wanted to get together with the PM. That wasn't going to happen. Uh, he wanted to see reform. Nobody really knew what that is. Then the, the premier said, uh, you know, conditions. I got no problem with that. Everything comes with conditions. And then we have an announcement like this today. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm glad you uh, shared the opening clip. But, you know, I, I believe Premier Ford said bold, innovative, creative. And I, I thought, give me a break. This is not bold, innovative or creative. I, I mean, yes, I. Awesome. We should be congratulating him for doing something. This is fantastic. But people have known for decades that we have a very hospital centric system in Canada. We basically provide care in hospitals. And this goes back to the way the system developed, right? The federal government offered 50 50 or cost sharing in 1957 if hospitals would provide and fund hospital services. And that was the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act. And so really, we've grown up from there. We added on physician services in 1966. Then we outlawed user fees and hospital user fees and extra billing in 1984. But really, it's been about hospitals, 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 and we've been fighting about funding. Today, we hear that, okay, finally, we're going to show an interest in independent health facilities. So these aren't new. These have been around in Canada for a long time. It's just that we've been really cautious or loath to use them because more services means higher costs and governments don't like seeing costs go up. So what are we to take from this? Is this part of the solution or is this a Band-Aid? No, I think it's a it's a huge step. Well, huge step, baby steps. We should say baby steps. It is yeah. a step in the right direction. So number one, we're hospital centric. We should be getting any procedures that we possibly can out of hospitals. We've had a huge move to ambulatory day clinics. All Those are basically inside hospitals. The trouble with having procedures in hospitals is that Beds in hospitals are a limited resource. And so you have multiple services fighting for the same number of beds. And so invariably what happens is those beds that are supposed to be assigned for surgeries get cannibalized by internal medicine or by patients waiting for long-term care. And so surgeries end up being canceled. Furthermore, it's very difficult to ram through the number of surgeries that you could in a in a independent health facility that you'd like to put through in an acute care facility because of those the bad issues, but also because hospitals are so heavily unionized. You're looking at close to 100% unionization rate when you look at nurses, so around 98%, 74% in the broader public sector. So it's very difficult to innovate procedures and, and uh, flow processes and turnover times and ratios for patients to nurses within the acute care hospital. Independent health facilities allow you to manage things differently and get patients the care they need more quickly. 
All right. As you said, we're not, uh, you know, it's not rocket science, uh, science here. It's stuff we've already been doing, but finally realizing the importance of these clinics and such. My goodness, Sean, uh, this last couple of days seems so easy. Why was it so hard to get to this point? <laughs> oh, man. So that's not a nice question to ask any, prim- any premier, <laughs> but it is the right question to ask. So, uh, you know, just thinking about the numbers, back in 1990, we had 33,403 acute care hospital beds in Ontario. In 2017, we were down to 18,500. The last I checked, we're around the 24,000 mark. So still less than we had in 1990, and our population has grown by leaps and bounds. So certainly we are far under-resourced when it comes to our ability to provide acute care services or interventional, surgical, procedural type services. So this is the the right thing to do. But again, I think I mentioned before, the the political stars have to align. Public pressure, Hmm. media paying attention, COVID's a good excuse to finally say, okay, we will adjust legislation, we'll allow more independent health facilities, and okay, we know it's going to cost more, but hey, the public's asking for it, so we might as well do it. All right, opposition say, the NDP saying that this is a, a slippery slope, that it will lead to a shortage of healthcare workers as they leave to go to this system. Um, your thoughts on all of that? Nonsense. Total nonsense. So, so you need to, we do not have an absolute lack of professionals, at least mm. for most professionals, perhaps subspecialized pediatric neurologists. Yes, okay, we need more of them. But in general, we have too few doctors and nurses because we constrain what they can do. Doctors and nurses could do a lot more than they are allowed to do. And a point, point of fact, you look at the emergency departments at 10, 11 p.m. at night, all of a sudden it's all hands on deck. Everybody forgets about nurse to patient ratios and you just work as hard as you can to empty the department so that you can get an hour of sleep or maybe even more. So all of a sudden these protocols and procedures don't matter as with respect to ratios. Everybody's working much harder than they do during the daytime with the same number of nurses. So it's an issue of having incorrect incentives. The incentive right now is to stick to a rigid four to one nurse ratio or six to one nurse ratio. Doctors want to go with a strict ratio of how many patients they're seeing per hour. And that's the issue holding things back. We need to be able to blow the doors off this, align incentives and focus on quality care and getting care to the patients who need it when they need it right away. Again, it seemed, and I'm sure it's way more complicated than what I'm making it out to be, but this announcement seemed quite painless and easy today. Could this have happened before COVID? Or is this an impossible discussion to have before COVID once we have seen what has happened with the global pandemic and and what our healthcare system has been struggling with, the workers have been struggling with now? Okay, we're we're, we're okay with this. So I can't remember the date. I, I should have checked this out before the program, but there was a, a discussion about expanding eye care uh, pre-COVID. This is probably going back 10 years ago. The uproar from the unions and the Ontario Hospital Association and the public sector employees was just amazing. Toronto, I won't mention which media outlet went crazy, right? Headline after headline. This is private care. This is terrible. It's the end of Medicare. Um, so it really depends on the political stars and how they're aligning. It seems to be the right moment. Independent health facilities are not no, new. We've had them before. We should have been expanding them a long time ago. And um, uh, some do profit from it being the way it is, don't they? 
Oh, totally. So there's a very powerful interest uh, within the hospital sector itself, not just the OHA, the, the number of unions that are represented and physicians. I mean, it's nice having a facility where you can um, swing your weight around, whereas at an independent health facility, management will be very different. In a smaller setting, it's harder to hide. The people who are low performers stand out. And so that may not be attractive to a certain kind of worker. However, a ton of healthcare workers love that environment. They're go-getters. They want to get things done. They don't want to sit on patients when they don't really need to be in the hospital, get them treated, get them out. And so I think this is a wonderful opportunity for a certain kind of person. It sounds like reform. Holy smokes. How did we get here? Uh, Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and senior fellow with the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Sounds like good news, Sean. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Uh, thanks to Lisa Pileski, as well as Erskine and Weber. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, today may be Blue Monday, but also today, remember Martin Luther King, as it is Martin Luther King Day in the USA. His famous speech, I have a dream, it's a classic. Still, much needs to be done to reach that dream in America. Mr. Lowe. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.